0: This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at Slate.com slash GIST News. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Monday, June 3rd, 2019 from Slate. It's The GIST. I'm Mike Pesca, and this is a Jeopardy! spoiler. Skip ahead four or five minutes If you don't want to hear about what happened today, James Holzhauer was poised to pass Ken Jennings for the most Jeopardy! winnings ever. And if you really want to preserve the drama, if you want a spoiler warning, fine, I'll give you a spoiler warning. I mean, the guy has won 32 straight games, and all of a sudden, he's going to lose in the 33rd. Fine, fine, fine. Spoiler warning coming. Here are the results. He lost. James lost. He lost to Emma Botcher. Bocher? Don't know. We'll see it tonight. It had to happen someday. But I want to point out one amazing aspect of how it all went down. So going into Final Jeopardy, Bocher led with 26,600. Holzhauer had 23,400. And third place guy at 11,000. So if you're Holzhauer, what are you going to do? You're trailing the first place, by 3,200. You figure you got to bet at least that, maybe a dollar more, because if you get it right, you pass her, and maybe you bet bigger, figuring you maximize your earnings, right? If you get it right, she gets it wrong. That's what you do. I would say 99 out of 100, maybe 999 out of 1,000 people, if they were in Holzhauer's position, would bet at least 3,200 to catch Bocher. But Holzhauer didn't do that. He didn't think okay, what if I get this right? He thought, what if she gets this wrong? And that is the right way to think because unless she gets it wrong, he's not going to win anyway. So what he did was he bet $1,399. Seems like a weird amount, right? It's not. Because that's the amount that he'd still have more money than third-place guy, even if third-place guy doubled up. Holzhauer assured that no matter what happened, if... Emma Bocher got it wrong, he would be the winner. And he knew that if Emma Bocher got it right, there'd be no chance to catch her. There is, I should acknowledge, mathematically, there is a small chance she could have bet a tiny amount for some reason, the JeopardyFan.com did a study of like eight years of Jeopardy and found that 87.5% of the time, the leader bets enough to cover the second place contestant if they doubled up. But even if Emma Bocher was in that 12.5% of time, she'd have to bet so little, it's almost crazy to think she'd do it. I literally have never seen anyone who's in first place in Final Jeopardy bet as little as Emma would have had to bet in order to lose. And, and it happened exactly in terms of the wagering, exactly like James figured it would happen, that Emma bet a lot more than double him. And the third place guy, he wound up betting a significant amount. And Holzhauer, by not betting too much, put himself in a position to win. He didn't win. He lost because Bocher got it right. But if Bocher got it right, he wasn't going to win no matter what. I'm going to say, that Holzhauer's $1,399 waiver, which Alex called out as a modest one for the first time, was a stroke of strategic genius. I am too old to be using the word baller, but I think I am using it correctly when I say it was a baller move. Genius, unappreciated genius, to be sure. Didn't win any money. That's all anyone will fixate on. He got it wrong. It doesn't matter. And he got only $2,000 for second place, added to the $2,462,216 that he already won. I would say it's all, all kind of impressive. It's fairly impressive, though today, like me, James Holzhauer is a guy whose most recent appearance on Jeopardy was a loss on Jeopardy, but he does have a very, very clever final Jeopardy wager to hang his hat on. On the show today, I spiel about bad answers to good questions, good answers to bad questions, and bad answers to bad questions. Okay, any questions? But first, Maria Konnikova is here to play our branded and beloved segment. The topic is bike helmets. Oh yes, they exist. They're not bullshit. The question is, should we wear them? How often? How much do they help? Or is that a little overstated? You know, Bullshit. <laughs> When I was a kid, days were spent wandering freely through open fields, possibly playing in glass-strewn abandoned lots and biking. Oh, so much biking. Be it a mongoose or a bike worse than a mongoose. And one aspect of that biking that was always true is that the wind would whip through our hair. Also, back then, I had hair. Now, things are different. The glass-strewn lots have become cleaned up. The yards have turned to cul-de-sacs. And the wind, well, it blows a little fiercer, but the hair cannot feel it, because every kid these days has a bike helmet, and also, a lot of adults do, too. Should they? Is it smart, or is that bullshit? Joining us now is Maria Konnikova, who is the author of The Biggest Bluff, And is or is that bullshit expert to talk about something I've wondered about and, in fact, have been criticized for doubting for a long time, helmets, how vital are they to keeping the noggin intact? Hello, Maria. How are you? Doing
1: well. How are you, Mike? Did you wear a helmet to the office today?
0: I didn't. I biked in. There was a time when I would always bike with a helmet, and that time has passed. And I can't say that it's a smart decision to bike without a helmet. Uh, There's no real benefit to it. I am blowing the whistle on myself, and yet I wonder if it's quite as dangerous as society would have us believe. So let's set a baseline. There are laws that kids have to do it, right? Yes. Yeah. And there are, as far as I know, I'm not breaking the law. There are no laws that adults have to wear a helmet in New York, at least.
1: In New York, at least. Yeah. Yes.
0: I mean, should there be? What are the statistics about how much a helmet protects you?
1: So there are lots and lots of studies on this um, in the last 20 years Mm -hmm. because people have been Asking this question for a long time. And so there are a few arguments that um, get put forward a lot. One, when you mandate them, you make some people less likely to bike. Mm -hmm. um, And then you make the people who bike take more risks. Right, And then there is the argument that, well, even if you wear it, um, it might not even do that much. And we don't even have good statistics because... We don't have good statistics, mm-hmm. so those are those are the arguments that yeah. that I've seen. Yeah. So the statistical argument that we that our data is wrong. The most famous study about this was done in 2015, um, where this guy whose last name is Zegers, Z-E-E-G-R-S. I just like saying that. <laughs> so so, so so I so I just will indulge you. So I'll, I'll just I'll, I just wrote it down, and I'm like Zegers. We have to mention the Zegers study. So he was saying that the effects of helmets are overestimated mm. because. We don't account for distance traveled, and we also don't account for the fact that most crashes aren't captured Mm -hmm. because most people, you know, they get into a little bike accident then they get right up okay so he's saying that
0: that are people saying you need a helmet because look at all the statistics we have on all these crashes exactly there's a lot of crashes where nothing bad happened exactly the only statistics we
1: have are on the crashes that make it to the hospital right and then there's another argument um, from the psychology side so this is a study about how risk-seeking we are and Mm -hmm. the guy who did the study is called tim gamble gamble (laughs) which which made me very happy for unknown reasons and Ian Walker. So they did this actually, this pretty f- cool study where they said it was a study of eye tracking um, where you had to like look at different things yeah. and they mounted the eye tracking equipment either on a baseball cap or on a bike helmet mm-hmm. and you'd put it on and then they were actually looking to see how many risks you would take in the simulation if you were wearing a cap versus a helmet. yeah. Um, and they found that people who were wearing the helmets took more risks. Uh-huh. And they didn't even know that their risk-taking behavior
0: was being looked Statistically at. Statistically significantly more risk.
1: Yes, but this was only 80 participants. Oh. But this isn't this isn't a new idea. Um, you know, we picked this particular study because they were looking specifically at helmets and at bikes. Um, yeah. but in psychology this is a this is a phenomenon known as risk compensation. Mm-hmm. And by the way, um, I think we should point out that this was the exact same argument that was made originally against seatbelts. Yes. People thought that we shouldn't have mandatory seatbelt laws because they thought that drivers would drive more quickly and take more risks Mm -hmm. when they had seatbelts. It ends up that seatbelts save lives, and this argument does not hold any water. So, I started looking at what data we do have. So, first of all, there's a strong argument on the other side that helmet effectiveness is actually Mm underreported because... We simply assume that if someone is wearing a helmet, we count it as wearing a helmet. Mm -hmm. However, in order for a helmet to be maximally effective, it can't be damaged and it has to fit correctly. Yeah, yeah. you got to
0: buckle it under the chin. And a
1: lot of people, like I actually see this all the time on the street, with kids and with adults, you know, you have them sitting to the side a little bit, which means it's way too loose, and it's not sitting properly, so it's not actually going to protect you properly. Plus, if you already sustain a single hit to the helmet, you need a new helmet. Mm. Helmets are not meant to sustain multiple hits. So now let's look at what the statistics actually are. Let's start with New York, because we live in New York. So this one was done um, at NYU Medical. And they looked at people coming into Bellevue Hospital, the Level 1 Trauma Center, um, between February 2012 and August 2014 for head injuries. So this is 699 total people came in during that time. And 273 of them, which is 39%, were wearing helmets and the rest were not. So they looked at a few different things. They tested them on the GCS, which is the Glasgow Coma Scale, which is kind of a scale of cognitive function. Mm -hmm. Then they looked at whether they were getting CAT scans and then they looked at actual injuries, fractures, et cetera. So they got fewer CAT scans. So 40% had to have a CAT scan versus 53 for those who weren't wearing helmets. They were less likely to sustain intracranial injury, 6% versus 20%, including skull fracture, 1% versus 15%. And they were less likely to have uh, brain injury, 2.6% versus 10.6%. Okay. And then four people had to have a craniotomy, and three of those died. And all of those were not wearing helmets. So, in general, taking all of that together they said that helmeted cyclists were 72% less likely to sustain traumatic brain injury compared with unhelmeted bicyclists. Right. Um, That's one study. Now we have a 2017 collaboration between Seattle, Victoria, New South Wales, Australia, and the Netherlands. So these are different societies where you have different types of roads, different types of bike use. And the Netherlands,
0: Here. though, I mean, bike use is everywhere. Exactly. It's basically, instead of walking. Yes. Yeah.
1: Um, and so this had sixty-four thousand injured cyclists. So cool. now our numbers I mean, are not cool. So shame. Yeah. So so now our numbers are going up significantly. Yeah. Right. Because and now we're looking at different societies and different amounts of bike use. I
0: do want to say that for this study, I hope they use not the Glasgow Coma Scale, but maybe the New South Wales or the, <laughs> or the Utrecht or Harlem so with two the, way's so, Coma so Scale. So they
1: didn't look at a Coma Scale in oh, this particular damn. one. They I just like the looked at Coma Scale. They just, I just heard at about it. Yeah, they just looked at head injury, yeah. um, and they they looked at odds reduction for mm-hmm. for different injuries, and it was fifty one percent. For head injuries, 69% for serious head injury, and 65% for fatal head injury. Okay,
0: so bigger sample, little less pronounced benefit than the 76% that you sided with Bellevue, but a pronounced benefit. Yes. Three um, times, you're three times more, I'm being very back of the envelope here, but you're three times less likely to have a head injury. If I'm you're just gonna aware. take your word for it. I'm okay, not, I'm not like gonna do any 60 mental 60. math right
1: now. So I'm gonna just give you a thumbs up. Okay. And there's no support for increased neck injury. So one of the other arguments is that helmets increase neck injury. So they actually also looked at this and said, well, do the helmet wearers actually have more neck injuries? Mm-hmm. And there was no support for that. Um, And then this is the biggest one that I was able to find. This was a 2018 meta-analysis from Norway. So this was quite recent. And it looked at 179 different effect estimates from 55 studies between 1989 and 2017. And so this one is an even bigger sample size, and we do see some smaller effects, but also significant effects. So head injury in general, reduced by 48% by bike helmets, serious head injury by 60%, traumatic brain injury by 53%, face injury by 23%, and the total number of killed or seriously injured cyclists by 34%. They also did not show any different effects between adults and children, because this is another argument that maybe they should be mandated for children, but not for adults, or vice versa, for whatever reason. Um, So they didn't see any differences between that. And they saw larger effects when it was mandatory than when it wasn't mandatory. Um, But they were... Let's see. They were found to have, this is, this is the one that has the drunk, the drunk cyclists. So they actually have larger effects among drunk cyclists than among sober cyclists.
0: Um not so, wearing, if you're n- going to be drunk. Drunk bicyclist, wear a helmet. Definitely wear a helmet. Definitely I got a better, helmet. bigger piece of advice yes, about probably. Yes, Probably is, yeah. don't go
1: on a cycle. Yeah. But if you're already going to do it, do it in a helmet. Hey, how
0: about this? Can we compare drunk, helmeted bicyclists <laughs> to sober, non-helmeted? Do we have that stat? Uh,
1: no, that, that stat is not here. I'm sorry.
0: Oh, damn. You yep. have to get in touch with them to the crunch those I numbers, should.
1: So. I absolutely should. Um, and also, and this um, has been shown in multiple studies, the effects are much larger when it's a single bike crash as opposed to a collision with a car. So basically, and there's another study um, that was done after this, if you crash head on with a car, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if you're wearing a helmet. This actually goes to some other arguments against bike helmets. Well, and this isn't even against bike helmets, though. People are putting it back on the cars and saying, well, we need more bike safety. We need more bike lanes. We need fewer cars. um, And we need drivers to drive more safely. It has nothing to do with helmets. And what I would say is the data show that, yeah, all of those things are true, that you need that too. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be wearing bike helmets. But there was one, um, one study that showed that there are... Um, and this was in London, so this was in 2018 in London. So it, this study was particularly good because it looked at volume, um, it looked at volume of bikes volume of cars, and speed limits, mm-hmm. um, and it showed that actually there's safety in numbers. So as there are more bikers, the injuries actually go down, not up, because presumably cars are looking more and yeah, people cars are get being, used to them, um, and people are being more right. kind of. Being a little bit safer um, from that side of you, and also maybe that maybe
0: also because just throwing this out there, as there are more bikers, that means more people have biked. That means the people behind the wheel might themselves have biked and be cognizant of absolutely. it. Yeah. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Um, and then that speed limits do matter. That there are fewer serious injuries when the car speed limit is twenty miles an hour as opposed to thirty miles an hour. Yeah. And then and then I would also say the other part of it, which has nothing to do with cars or volume or anything like this, is. As you bike more and more um, in different conditions, so even, like, let's assume that you're biking in the middle of Cape Cod with mm-hmm. no cars around. Okay. And I'm picking Cape Cod because everyone bikes everywhere on Cape okay. Cod. So so imagine, like, you're you're doing a scenic bike ride, and uh-huh. you think there's no way I need to wear a helmet, and then there's something on the road, and you actually just flip because your bike goes over a pebble right. or something Um yeah. and you fall on your head. Right. So even like that, when it's just you um, and there are no cars around, helmets are probably not a bad idea.
0: Yeah. I got to start wearing one for all the statistical reasons that you put forward. But also if having gone public with these pretty ignorant and retrograde ideas, if I get hurt, so many fewer people will have sympathy for yeah. me. Yeah, That's like a this major is true. component. This is true. Yeah. This is true. And I don't want you don't want the you don't want to engage in action where when it, the bad thing happens the number one thing yeah. that people say is serves you right. Yeah. I'm and I avoid actually all the and right.
1: I personally from yeah. my psychological standpoint, I think that most people don't wear helmets not because of any of these arguments that they think are true, but because they're just lazy.
0: So, wearing a helmet demonstrated to prevent injuries overall have a in total salubrious effect on the helmet wearer.
1: That is not bullshit, and that is the case even in countries where helmets are mandated. So even even if it's a mandate and a law and you have to do it, it's still very good and potentially even better.
0: Maria Konnikova is the author of The Biggest Bluff, which is, it's been forthcoming for a while, but I'm telling you, it's going to come forth. Thank you so much, Maria.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Mike.
0: Hey, listener, you may have heard via your earbuds, car stereo, smart speaker, or immersive shower sound system that podcasts are the future. We at Slate think so, too, which is why we are hosting Slate Day in New York City on Saturday, June 8th. The day starts with a performance by Ms. Cracker of RuPaul's Drag Race fame. We've got pop culture trivia where you can join Slate's own writers. A play date for kids organized by our parenting podcast, Mom and Dad are Fighting and You know Hit Parade, that podcast about the biggest hits in pop and music. They are going to have a dance party. Of course, we will have panels too, including mine, titled "The Art of Podcasting with Mike Pesca. And these guests will include Manouche Zamarodi of Zigzag and Adam Davidson, who founded Planet Money now has started his new podcasting venture with Sony. For tickets to this event, go to slate.com slash live. We'll see you on Saturday, June 8th. And now the spiel. It is hard to give a good answer when you don't have a good answer. But sometimes it's hard to give a good answer when you do have a good answer. I will now present an example of each So Jared Kushner, he of the permanently arched eyebrow and perpetually poxed Israel peace plan, Uh, don't measure this guy for a Swedish based honor just yet, Jared Kushner was on the Axios political show on HBO. He was being interviewed by Jonathan Swan, who asked him, is your father-in-law a racist Kushner said this. So uh, the answer is uh, uh, no, a- absolutely not. Uh, you can't not be a racist for 69 years, then run for president and be a racist. And what I'll say. Yes, that probably is true. A septuagenarian who has racist policies and espouses racist ideas probably didn't start as soon as he put the hand on the Bible during inauguration. I don't know. Maybe he, say, redlined black people out of his housing developments or called for the death penalty of black teens convicted of crimes they didn't commit, which actually weren't even capital offenses to begin with. And once their exoneration was proved, never apologized, maybe repeatedly called Maxine Waters stupid. Yeah, I don't know. If you want to say, look, all of those are just shithole examples, fine. I also like Kushner's phrasing, you can't not be a racist. Yes, can't not be equals can be, does it not? When pressed on one specific cause that the president championed, Kushner couldn't not be flummoxed. Was birtherism racist? Um, look, I wasn't really involved in that. I know you weren't. Mm -hmm. Was it racist? Uh, Like I said, I I wasn't involved in that. I know you weren't. Mm -hmm. Was it racist? Um, look, I know who the president is, and I have not seen anything in him that is racist. So again, I was not involved in that. Did you wish he didn't do that? Uh, Like I said, I was not involved in that. That was a long time ago. Kushner had no good answer because there is no good answer. Trump, by the way, disavowed the idea of birtherism in September of 2016. Not that long ago, Kushner was a senior advisor on the campaign. I guess he figures, I'll do the interview. As long as I'm mellow, I will wind up looking better than Stephen Miller. That's the bar, too clear. So there is that. Over on CNN, however, we got a different kind of Q&A, one that is equally frustrating, but not a desperate sort of frustration, more of a ruin the road not taken sort. After the tragic mass shooting in Virginia Beach, Jake Tapper had on Senator Cory Booker and Tapper asked this.
2: Now, ATF says that the two weapons used in the attack were handguns, not uh, semi-automatic assault rifles, uh, and they say that they were purchased legally. How would your plan have stopped this tragedy, if at all? Well, Jake, again, this is uh, a tragedy today, but you you know that every single day in the United States of America, in the aggregate, uh, we have mass shootings that go on in neighborhoods like mine. I
0: live in an inner-city black and brown community. You were there yourself. Uh, Booker, you may have noticed, did not answer the question, not directly, so Tapper noticed, and he tried again. We are not helpless. But you, you, I, tie- you, keep,
2: you keep, keep saying, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you keep saying we're not mm-hmm. helpless. So I'm saying, what would have prevented this tragedy? I mean, I think that's one but, of the uh, issues that people uh, wonder about when there are these horrible tragedies. What steps specifically would have stopped the massacre in Virginia Beach? And and you've taken a look at the 16, 17 things we have In my plan, that would drop the levels of violence overall from one handgun a month laws uh, all the way to investing in the kind of
0: mental health uh, and the kind of community empowerment. Again, Booker does not answer. Or rather, he gives an answer somewhat adjacent to the question, but it seems like an indirect answer because it is an indirect answer and therefore a non satisfying one. Booker knows this isn't one of those cases where the murder weapon. Or the aid to the murder weapon, like a bump stock, was specifically something that he and gun advocates have been calling on for a while to be banned, right? It's also not the case that the guns were obtained via a loophole and he's desperately been trying to close the loophole. But that's all right. Because when you give an answer that clearly evades the question, people will tune out. And I don't say this just to help Cory Booker's political career, I say it, to help the cause of preventing gun violence. Here's how I think the answer could have gone.
2: Now, ATF says that the two weapons used in the attack were handguns, not uh, semi-automatic assault rifles, uh, and they say that they were purchased legally. How would your plan have stopped this tragedy, if at all?
0: You know what, Jake? Maybe it wouldn't have. Maybe in a country of washing guns and with 11,000 homicides a year, Some murders are going to happen. Maybe this is one that would have happened. Maybe this is one that wouldn't. I guess we can't say. You know, if you cut all the gun homicides in half, you still have the other half. Look... 37,000 people a year die in car crashes. A little over 10,000 of them are because of drunk driving. So do you say, oh, give up on your drunk driving agenda? What use is the drunk driving agenda? Because drunk driving didn't factor into that crash or that one over there or the third one over there. But beyond that, just that if we can do a lot to prevent gun violence, we should – Furthermore, it does seem to me that there's something of a social contagion going on when it comes to mass shooting. Mass shootings have been spiking. They've tripled in the last decade or so. And you know what? Maybe if the things I call for every day and the things that most American people agree with, like banning the AR-15 or those kind of weapons, maybe if that was in place or better background checks or the licensing requirements I do propose, maybe if those had been in place – Some of those other shootings don't happen. And then this shooter doesn't get his head filled with all those violent notions. Who knows? Let's just say that the worst thing that would happen under that scenario is that many murder victims would still be alive. Maybe not these, but many murder victims would be living, and that's something to strive for. So... I would say an answer like that seems more direct and it seems righteous. And by the way, I don't blame Tapper for asking the question. I think Booker could have answered it better. Of course, just by answering a question about gun deaths with the general answer, we should have fewer and here are some laws. That's a huge improvement on what the administration is putting forward. On Meet the Press on Sunday, Mick Mulvaney was there talking about the same incident. I think the president believes very firmly in the Second Amendment right, in, in our Second Amendment rights. He also believes that you cannot take these exceptions, and clearly people like this are exceptions. This is not the rule. 99.9% of people in this, in this country who own a gun are law-abiding gun owners. and you Most people allow... don't commit murder, but we have laws. Well, Mick, Chuck Todd did not say, there are 100 million gun owners, so that 0.1% That is 100,000 people. And yeah, I would say if there are 100,000 people who have malice in their hearts and guns in their hands, it's a bad situation. If you're telling me, well, here's how to think about this mass murder. There are only 99,900 or so others who could do it. You're not calming the situation. And by the way, that's a very off-the-cuff dismissal. Did you have the CDC generate that 99.9% figure? But even so, on its face, it is very, very disturbing and not an answer to the problem. It's about as disturbing as the situation with gun violence in America is disturbing. It is a situation that will not be quelled with good rhetoric, but it is not helped any by bad answers either. And that's it for today's show. that just is produced by Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader. Wonder where Donald Trump's racism has gone? Long time passing. Where has Donald Trump's birtherism gone? Long time ago. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, knows where all the flowers have gone. They've gone to your dad in this exclusive Father's Day offer. Just use promo code... G- what? Dads don't like flowers? What am I doing with this promo code? We also had help today from Chow Chu. When will she ever learn? When will she ever learn? The gist. Wondering if you've noticed that all of our credits today were in the form of a question. Oomperu depurudupuru, and thanks for listening.